Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast, Monday, July 9th. This is Anastasia Yuglova. Two months ago, Cato's online magazine, Cato Unbound, tackled the debate over the place of liberty in economic theory. I caught up with one of the participants in that issue, distinguished University of Chicago law professor Richard Epstein. In this phone conversation, I pick his brain on coercion, the state, and the minimum wage. We're dealing with a fairly esoteric topic here. It's the tension between voluntary and coercive action as regards economic policy. So just to frame the topic then, how do you define coercion? Well, that's a very fair question, and I think there are two definitions that you could start to think of. Uh, One definition, which I think we ought to reject as overbroad, is that which says that coercion is any action taken by an economic actor which harms the economic interests of another individual. Uh, That may sound good to many people because it's kind of reminiscent of the old million harm principle, which says that the only reason that the state may act is to prevent the harm that one individual commits to another. But on the other hand, this definition of harm is so broad that what it does is it covers ordinary competition as well as thuggery. And that confusion between the competition and the thuggery is what leads people, I think, very sadly astray. So that what one has to do, in effect, is to narrow this idea of the harm principle and to say that coercion involves the threat of the use of force, by which we mean it in the classical libertarian sense, the willingness to inflict physical danger or some other kind of injury of that nature on another individual. And in addition to that, we could probably say that coercion also includes the ability to threaten people with defamation or other kinds of fraudulent statements, which will induce them to stay in line. And it's almost a reverse form of engineering. If you think with reasonable confidence that competitive markets will produce a fairly strong social output, then the last thing you want to do is to define competitive injury as coercive injuries, because that means in every case in which you have market behavior, you have coercive action which justifies state intervention. And that flips everything upside down. You really want the state to intervene to make sure that physical force is not used to upset markets, rather than to make sure that physical force is used in order to preserve a monopoly or a prior advantage of an established competitor. Now, according to that rubric, using that rubric, what amount of state coercion should civil society tolerate? What constitutes, for example, as you put in your essay, justified coercion? Well, I think that's a very fair question, again. And one of the things that we do know about all forms of social systems is that if there is no coercion that takes place at the center, then there'll be all sorts of illegal moves taken by individuals acting on their own interests at the periphery. And so the way in which you have to understand this is to say that the state is entitled to use or to threaten to use force to combat the use or threat of force by other private individuals. And this means, in effect, that if there's somebody who wants to get an unfair competitive advantage over his rival by deflating the tires in his trucks or by defaming him to third-party customers, that's a ground on which the state can interfere in order to restore the competitive balance. So that what happens is the justification for state use of coercion is in fact defined by the permissible kinds of behaviors that are done by private individuals. Where the behavior of private individuals turns out to be in general justified and competitive, then the state has to defend it rather than to undermine it. But where one competitor tries to overstep the line and to damage the property or reputation of another by unlawful means, that is by force of fraud, then the state has to neutralize that. The point is you can't run a coercion-free society, but what you hope to do is to make the threat of state coercion sufficiently stable and credible that private individuals will know that they have nothing to gain by illicit activities, and so they'll back off of them, and if there's less private violation of the norms, 
then there's a smaller occasion for the use of state force, which means that you really are trying to develop a system in which there's a very positive and active commercial equilibrium in business and also similarly in the arts and in various other kinds of social situations. When people say all sorts of controversial things, the state's going to protect them against coercive activities by others who find defense of what they say. It's really important in this area to understand that the definitions of coercion and voluntary behavior and the ideas of competition are not simply restricted to economic activities, but cover the full range of human experience, including artistic and political participation. I take it from what you're saying that you don't think that a free market can exist absent at least some form of state coercion. Well, you need certainly some form of state force to make sure that the the people in the system will be able to play by the rules. And the great difficulty with the private enforcement is, of course, the one that Locke pointed out many years ago. If I'm entitled to enforce my natural rights to property or my rights to contract against other individuals, what's to prevent me from making a sham of the entire situation by claiming that these rights have been infringed and then using my power to infringe on the like rights of other individuals? And the theory about having impartial courts is it means that you can try and set somebody who's outside the market process to adjudicate the claims between the two sets of individuals. And that then sets up the very obvious question, well, who's going to guard the guardians and to make sure that they aren't corrupt? And for that, you need a fairly extensive set of structural social protections, often embodied in constitutions, to make sure there's an independent judiciary, that there's a system of tax, that people respect their judgments, that bribery and corruption will be ruled out. And it's a full-time job. I mean, one of the things that all of us, I think, um, reflective defenders of small government believe is that you can't even have a very small government to do a very few things. Uh, it's a big job even when you want to have very limited tasks. Now, to bring these slightly abstract ideas into the realm of practical reality, let's talk about the minimum wage. Economists' arguments, as you know, on the minimum wage vary very widely. Where do you fall on the debate? Is the minimum wage a justified form of coercion? Um, no, I, I think even, let me put it to you this way. I think if somebody were to say that um, you have to have a minimum wage of $0.00, that would be too high. And the question is, why would one want to take such a reactionary position? And I think if we start looking at job markets, we have to remember that they work in very complicated ways, and that one of the things that people hope to get from jobs in many cases is some degree of education or some degree of on-the-job training and skills that will allow them to learn a, earn a higher income down the road. So many people, including yourself, have been interns at one point or another. You don't get paid anything at all in cash, but on the other hand, you get knowledge, you get exposure to context, and you get experience, which is worth more than the wages. And so all that the observation proves to you is that there's sometimes that what one learns from a job is worth more than you can contribute to the employer, so that what you do, or, or about the same amount, so what you do in effect is you forfeit the wage in order to get the education. And that's absolutely critical. So what you have to do is to just keep the government out of this particular situation, because otherwise there'll be a permanent imbalance between supply and demand. Um, when would you put a minimum wage in there? There'll be lots of people who want to work for a very high wage and relatively few people who are willing to supply them. That shortage will lead to all sorts of intrigues. And the only way in which you can avoid them is to let the price barrier disappear, and then the supply will start to, uh, how do we say it, the supply of, of labor will start to reduce, and the demand for labor will start to increase, and then you'll get yourself back into some kind of a sensible equilibrium. So I don't think that there's anything about the huge amounts of empirical literature that have supposedly come out 
on the benevolent nature of the minimum wage, that alters this, I think, fairly clear conclusion. I mean, some of the studies, for example, say, well, you know, there's some really enlightened employers out there who pay more than the minimum wage right now, so we can afford to raise it for everybody else. That doesn't happen at all. All it proves, in effect, is that if the equilibrium wage in a market is above the minimum wage, then the minimum wage really doesn't matter except for a few minor workers. But the moment you start to put the minimum wage above the market wage, then you're going to start to see serious dislocations. So this is really, I think, a very easy one. A minimum wage is a difficult law to enforce, uh, so it costs money on the public side. Um, it disrupts private voluntary transactions, so it causes private harm. This is a very deadly one-two combination. What you're doing is you're spending public monies raised from tax dollars in order to make the operation of the economic system worse than it will otherwise be. And, and I cannot understand why anybody from a social point of view would think that this is a wise investment of public resources. Thank you, Professor. This is the last episode of the Cato Daily Podcast that I'll be hosting. I'm passing the torch on to my colleague, Kayla Brown, who'll be taking over for me. So I just want to say thank you so much to the listeners for helping to make the podcast as popular as it's become and for helping to spread the ideas and research of the Cato Institute. It's been a real pleasure hosting the show, and I really hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And as always, stay tuned for the next episode.